This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 12th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, Nick Rafter. I was at Hofstra Radio from 2002 to 2006. And what shows or programs did you work on at WRHU? I was mainly a news guy. I was news director in 2004, so I mainly worked on Newsline and on The Morning Show. But I also DJed uh, Airwave, Jazz Cafe, Classics of Hofstra. And I was one of the first people to uh, DJ Out of Phase, which was our, our overnight uh, format show that Longstreet went 24 hours. Hmm. Okay. Did you work on any of the weekend programs or any of the community service programs? Uh, very few of them. I, I never, I rarely um, did work on the weekends, but I did do a lot of the uh, fundraising events, the uh, the um, marathons. Okay. So I, I often produce those. Okay. Um, did you have, you, you mentioned uh, you were the news director. Did you have any other uh, titles or positions at the station? Yeah, I was traffic director in 2003. And I was program director in 2005. Okay. Um, when you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames or aliases? My, it's funny. My, my full name is Dominic Rafter. Um, and I first started going as Nick on WRHU. And my reason behind it was my grandfather. I mean, my grandfather. My grandfather's name was, they called him Nick. And me, Dominic. And I always said that when I did something extraordinary, like go on the radio, I would shorten it to my grandfather's name. So actually Nick Rafter was my on-air alias, and it stuck and became my everyday name after that. Wow. Um, yeah. so, so your family called you Dominic. Yeah, and they still do, but, but it's funny how it, that evolved into Nick for everyone but my close family, simply because that's what I used on-air at WRHU. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so two-part question, and this is about getting started at the radio station. Um, first part is, what was it that brought you to the station? And the second part is, for those of us who weren't there at the same time, can you describe what the station was like, maybe people that you met, what it looked like, what it smelled like, who was around? Uh, give us a, a picture of what it was like when you first got to WRHU. Well, it's interesting. I, I grew up in Queens, and I went to high school in Queens. So my senior year of high school, when I already committed to Hofstra, I would sit outside school in the morning with my friends in my Camry, the Frederick Camry, mm. and listen to the radio station. I'd listen to WRHU. And my friends, my high school friends would say, oh, is this going to be you and get to Hofstra? Are you going to do this? And I had committed to it. I said, yeah, well, I want to do it. And freshman year went by, and I didn't get involved. It was year of 9-11, so everything was very upside down. So I, I didn't do it my freshman year. But at, at the end of my freshman year, my high school friends reminded me that you wanted to work at the radio station. Why didn't you do that? And I said, you know, you're right. So I, I sent in an application, like old school, printed it out, filled it out, mailed it in, like snail mail application in, in May or June, and got a call back in August to come for an interview. Um, the first time I went to the station, it was August of 2002. It was in the summer, so was, the campus was dead. And I didn't fully understand that I had to go through an interview and training class process. I thought mm -hmm. it was you walked in, you had an interview, they put you on air. So I walked into the station extremely confident that I was already going to be there. And I sat down with an interview with, um, with 
Ed Ingalls um, and two other people. One of them was Andy Gladding, who's still a friend of mine today. Mm-hmm. And I basically told them, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do news. I'm going I'm to go cover political campaigns. I'm going to go cover you know, this and that. And I, I can't wait to get started. And they were, they were just blown away by my, my ambition and told me years later that they were blown away by my ambition and my confidence that I was able to do this. Because uh, Andy Gladding, who happens to still be a friend of mine today, I actually just found him a house. I'm a realtor in Brooklyn and helped to find a house. Said to me, it was your confidence and your ambition. When so many people come in here and they're, they feel overwhelmed, you came in and immediately felt like you belonged here. And that's what allowed us to say, yeah, this is definitely somebody we want to invest in. And so I think the first time I came to the radio station, I felt immediately at home. It felt like a place, that, and I always have a hard time finding a place where I feel like I belong. And it was one of those easiest fits that I ever remember. Just walking to Dempster Hall and being like, this is home for me. This is where I want to be. And wow. I was overwhelmed at all by it at first. Wow. Do you remember any of the, the, the questions or the prompts they gave you in that interview yeah. that, or, or any of your responses? It's funny. The one thing that I remember Andy Gladding asking me was, what is currently, what are you currently listening to music-wise? And I don't remember everything that I said, but I remember one of the things I said was, I was listening to, um, was a, a electronic house music artist, Paul Oakenfold. I was mm-hmm. in Wildwood that summer, and I I caught on to to his music, and I must have said a few other things that were that were uh, attractive to him. He said your your eclectic mix of music was was just shocking to me, and I thought he thought that, that was also a plus on my side. I remember that question, and I remember Ed Ingalls asking me, "What do you want to do when you graduate college?" And I told this was at the beginning of the Iraq War, like the Iraq War had just started. So I said to him. I wanted to be, I wanted to go to the war zone. And I wanted to be a reporter in the war zone. I wanted to tell people what was going on there. You know, truthfully, I admired people like Ernest Hemingway and Edward R. Murrow and um, people throughout history who went to war zones and reported there. And I wanted to do that. And that's one of the other questions I remember being asked. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You really blew the doors off of that interview. <laughs> I really thought it, it was just a, a formality. I honestly believed that. And then I was like gung-ho excited to go. And I remember at the end of the interview being told, all right, next process is you have to go through a second interview if we call you back. And then if we call you back um, for training class. And I remember walking out going, oh man, there's there's more steps. <laughs> but but I, I, I kind of knew I would just like blow through them and I did. So. Wow. Very impressive. I want to go back um, a little bit to, to you saying that during high school, you were listening to WRHU. How did you become aware of Hofstra Radio, and um, you know how did that factor into your decision to go there? I don't. I mean, I, I it didn't factor. My, I honestly didn't factor my decision to go to Hofstra. Okay. Um, Hofstra actually wasn't my first choice school, but a PIAC was. Um, but what had happened was my my parents went to the tuition at Quinnipiac, and they said, mm, "We're not sure we can do this." You know, would, would you, it would be okay if you commuted to school and not lived at school. And honestly, I'm an only child, so I was like, commuting probably made more sense for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to Hofstra to look at their journalism program, and I was impressed. And I said, okay, this is, this is you know, not going to be, I'm very happy to come to Hofstra. 
And um, I guess I, I looked at what kind of journalism offers there were, and I saw the radio station was among them. And I guess I just started, at some point, started listening to it. And the, the morning show was the one thing I listened to. And I really was excited in high school about the possibility of doing the morning show. And that ended up being, towards the end of my career at the, at the station, what I did most, most of the time. Um, it was really, I mean, I remember telling Ed Ingalls my first day that I don't think I could ever host the morning show. And he was like, yeah, you will. And I was like, no, I can never do that. And then I did do it at the end. And I was like, I was really good at it. So um, I don't know what exactly made me find the radio station, but I just remember journalism is why I wanted to go to Hofstra, the way I decided. Mm-hmm. And I guess it just was part of that search, part of that exploration was whatever radio TV offers that Hofstra had, I went out and saw it. Very interesting. Um, what were your impressions of Ed Ingalls and, and in those early days? Because most people come in, they don't know he's Ed Ingalls. Yeah. Um, it's, you, it's funny because I ended up being in the same class as his daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up befriending his daughter. And, and we had a really close work, uh, close friendship and a close colleagueship. We were assistant news directors together. So my first impression of him, I didn't know, who, I honestly didn't know who he was. Right. My first impression of him was that he was Kevin and Diana's dad. That's all I knew. And, um, you know, and, and that I felt like I needed to keep close to him because whatever my, my, um, my intimidations were about, or, or trepidations about being on air, I felt like he was definitely the one who was going to help me through that. And I remember the first time I sat with him the day I got cleared for air, <coughs> it was still the training class. And he said to me, what do you want to do here? And I was like, well, what do you do? You know, whatever. He goes, and then you're going to host the morning show. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, no, I'm absolutely never going to do that. Like, maybe I'll co-host one, one day. But like the idea of hosting the morning show was so daunting to me that I was like, no. And he was like, don't ever, I remember him saying, don't ever doubt yourself. Don't ever say no to something. Do what scares you. He gave me all these pieces of advice that, like, I still stick with me today. And, um, and I thought to myself, well, this is somebody who has, and I hate to say that I never had anyone who was on my side before who really, like, rooted for me because I had a lot of people in my life who were like, you know, don't do that. It's a little hard. Don't do something easier. But he was one of the first people who was like, no, do the hard thing. You know, fail spectacularly and then do better next time. And so that was my one thing that I remember was I said, I have to remain close to this man because if I succeed, he's going to be a largely, largely the reason why. But, um, but he was also just Diana's dad, my mm-hmm. friend's dad. And so I think having that relationship with him, both professionally and the fact that I happen to be friends with his daughter and his son, I think that that two sides are extremely, I'm extremely lucky to have had that in my time there. Mm, that's fantastic. Um, as you as you get acclimated to the station, you're, you're taking a, a training class, I assume. Yeah. Do you remember anything about that? Anything that you learned in particular? Maybe who taught it or other people that were with yeah. you in that class? Mikey Petrillo, Dustin Gervais, Emily Emily Tweedy, were the teachers. Um, I'm still I'm still friends with Dustin today. Um, Mike was in New Orleans, but we you know every now and then I I, I find that I see him on Facebook. I remember that I felt. <clears throat> initially a little overwhelmed 
but I was excited. I remember that I learned so much that I didn't know before. And so often I feel like I go to a class and I already know some of the stuff. So I kind of just was in like, you know, I just tread water. But I remember being just like into it. And I felt that there was a sense of family and tradition with the radio station that was different than most other extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. It's like I was joining a, a family and that I had to be respectful of that. And so I had to treat it with seriousness and with the respect that it deserved. I remember being scared of failing the test. And the, the day of the test, I was so paranoid by it that I actually drove to the cemetery where my grandfather was buried. And I sat in front of his grave and I was like, please, please, I need, you know, help me through this, help me through this. I need to pass this test. And I just felt so like scared that I was going to fail it. And I remember taking it and like blowing through it going, oh, this was easy, (laughs) you know? Mm. And, um, but I just remember that like, there's nothing, I don't think to this day, I'm almost 40 years old. There was, I ever wanted anything more than to, to be a WRHU in that moment training class like i wanted it badly and i was i was willing to go as far as i needed to go and do whatever i needed to do to have it to be a part of that that's amazing you made that uh that connection that passionately and like you said you didn't go down to the station your first year so you're a sophomore and you meet ed and you meet andy and uh diana and you take this class and you are it sounds like you're a hundred percent in right away. Yeah, and actually, it was, it was there was a the news director at the time was a, was a, a man Andrew Falzell. Oh, sure. We're still best friends today, actually. Mark, um, I just talked to him five minutes ago about doing this. Um, he took on a lot of the trainees that that year, and he wanted to build a news department. So he wanted to, his ulterior motive was to get us to do, do newsline and stuff. But he would take he would he would take us out to like uh, hockey games. There was a member of the stat of the station who was on the Hofstra hockey team. And we would go out and have, have these outings where we would all like bond with each other. And so that training class, my training class through Andrew bonded with each other in a way that we became still lifelong friends. I'm still friends with people who are in that training class. I work with one of them. We, she came to the real estate industry with me. Um, I go and visit some of them. Uh, when I'm out of state, I just saw one in Las Vegas a month ago when I was a friend of mine from the training class. Um, and and we, we would go on vacations together. We would, we would do Hamptons weekends together well into our 30s, go to each other's weddings, go to each other's, you know, family events. And it was, it was that, that bonding that Andrew had us do during the training class that really, I think, it also helped the station because we became kind of new blood and we all wanted to be in management. We all wanted to be heavily involved and we were all competing with each other for management positions. And I think that we really did, you know, build kind of a, a, a new, a new station that, that era that I think a lot of change happened in that era because of that. I'm, I'm so happy to be part of that. I was glad to be part of that training class. 
Do you remember after you passed the test and, and did your demo, do you remember getting on the air the first time? And if not the specific time, maybe your feelings, your anticipation, because that, that interview, you came in strong. Yeah. I, and I, then I, you, I, yeah, go ahead. Everything. October 22nd, 2002. Okay. The reason why I know that is it was my cousin's fourth birthday. I was actually going to have dinner and I had, I was late because of this. I got cleared for air. I had that meeting with Ed and I had, he had given me the, the privilege of breaking a new story, a news line. And it was the story of uh, Senator Paul Wellstone dying in a plane crash. Oh gosh. Yeah. So it wasn't a happy story, but it was, it was a breaking news story. So I ran in there and I was all excited and I was like, you know, they cut to me a dick rafter with a breaking news story right now. And I, read the story i think i was a little over animated when i did it but but i was that was the first time i was ever on air and it felt the rush felt like i i don't even i don't even i, I can't even describe like i don't want to describe it as drugs because i don't think that's a cool way of describing it but that's what it felt like it felt like the biggest hit and i was like oh my god i can't believe i did that like that was the most exciting thing i ever did and blah, blah blah whatever um the first time i was on the board is another fun story the first time I was behind the board officially on my own was Christmas Day, 2002. Mm-hmm. And I had to do a classic slot and I had to do Condal's Messiah, which uh, requires a dead air flip. Now, that's one of the most difficult things to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, have, you have to do it within 30 seconds. And this is the first time I'm behind the board. I struggle to get somebody to cover that slot. And I remember Andrew telling me, you have to do it. This is your big, you know, your big entrance. This is your, you're being thrown into the fire, you know, do it. And I said, okay. So I, I was scared and I sat there, I came to the station. It was Christmas day. There was nobody there. It was the dentist you ever seen it. And I, you know, I did the dead air flip. I did it perfectly, flawlessly. And I never did one again after that. <laughs> I refused to do it again. And the best thing about that day was it was raining that day. And when I left, like when I signed off to the next person, and walked out of the station and, and got into my car, it started to snow. So it was also the first white Christmas that I ever experienced. So it was a, it was a memorable day. Wow. Wow, those are those are great experiences. And and I, I guess sometimes my follow-up question is, did you feel nervous or confident beforehand? And then how did you feel afterwards? And it sounds like in both of those cases, you got through those moments and and had that sort of affirming feeling of, of yeah, I did this. I, I, I can do this. I think everything about the radio station from that, from, from, from the first time on air and the first time I did a dead air flip, everything was, I was extremely nervous. I might've tried to get out of it once or twice, but I, I said, look, this is, this is what I fought for. This is what I worked for. This is what I wanted. You know, and if you fail, no one's going to scream, you know, you might get screamed at, but you'll learn. And just have the confidence that you can do this and, and, and see what happens. Everything that I did throughout those four years, that's what I did. And I I think I succeeded in almost everything that I did there. I mean, some stuff maybe I had to do two or three times before I figured it out. But I think it was really just reminding myself that I wanted to be here. This is what I wanted to do. This is where I feel like I belong. And so I just have to do it. I remember doing that dead air flip and just like not overthinking it just going through the steps in my mind and then until it was done and then once it was done and i heard the music start playing again that that, that sigh of relief and then mm-hmm. that, that confidence that oh now i can do anything now i can maybe make it host the morning show <laughs> you mm-hmm. know 
because I've done this. And I, I remember that feeling of just being like, wow, I did that. And imagine what else I can do. That's a great feeling. Um, would it be fair to say that you felt pretty comfortable being on the air pretty quickly? Or did yeah. it take some time? Or was there another moment where you're like, yeah, this is definitely, I made the right choice? Well, yeah. I mean, I would say probably within six months, I was I was comfortable. The problem I think I had for one of them was that I, I had to have me take a lot of um, classes to enunciate because I have a really thick Long Island accent and sometimes go into mumbles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk really fast. So I had to take classes and that, that sort of intimidated me a little bit because I was like, well, maybe I can't, maybe I'm not able to do this. But um, I think I got, I got used to it pretty fast. And one thing I will say that happened to me several times was if something funny happened and I couldn't control the laughter. And I had a couple of moments where, you know, I'm doing a serious news story or something and off on the side, like something funny happens and I get the, the giggles mm-hmm. and, and that always used to make me nervous. You know, it used to make me crazy. I mean, I had, I, I, it's just stories I would tell you, like, like little, they're a little racy. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you off the record, but <laughs> fair enough. Um, <laughs> that was always a scary thing. I will say it took about three to six months where I felt fully comfortable on air. And then I was always worried about cursing because I, you know, I grew up in Queens. I was a Queens boy. So, you know, F-bombs just like came naturally to me. And I wasn't sure that, especially when I wasn't reading a script, that I wouldn't say something like that just casually in a conversation. And I really had to learn that because I did have a potty mouth. And I had to really learn to like, don't don't just throw in an F-bomb, you know, in the middle of a conversation, the morning show, the way you would casually, you know, hanging out with your friends. Because you really had to learn to, 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 to differentiate between you and four friends mm-hmm. at Applebee's on Friday night and you and four friends behind the board of the morning show. But sometimes the conversations were similar. You know, we would, I mean, I would talk about politics or culture or current events with my friends off air. And then we'd talk about it on air. And it was like, well, you, you can't call, you know, a certain politician, you know, and, uh, you know, F, you know, on air. You could do it off air. So it was, um, that was something that, that intimidated me for a while, but I was able to figure it out. I think my brain was able to partition when I was on air, when I was off air. I think, I think there was, uh, there was a, a switch in there and I figured it out. Mm-hmm. I in, in my own experience, uh, having a potty mouth and knowing a lot of people in radio and TV who can swear up and down. I think it's funny that a lot of us are, are, are drawn to a medium where we're just, we're not allowed to do it. Do you ever remember a time where, where you, you thought you came close to blowing yeah. that and pulled yourself back? I, um, I did the morning show once of no sleep mm-hmm. and I had accidentally wished for president Bush's assassination. <laughs> I had actually said it. And I literally said it, like I, I started to say it. And I said, SOB is what I said. And, and said, somebody should just shoot. And I stopped myself. And I remember I was actually doing it with Andrew. Andrew uh-huh. was hosting the show. And he looked at me and he was, what are you? And I stopped myself. And I was like, 
and I was like, never mind. I'm just not going to say it. I'm thinking, I'm just not, and I backed off for it. And then I remember after that, like, making sure that if I ever did the morning show again, I would be on a lot of sleep because <laughs> I think I was on Red Bull too. I remember another episode where we did a remote from the student center and um, Ed decided that we were going to do on the like like personal street interviews. And I'm like, I don't think this is a very good idea. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a day where it was like a raw, rainy, cold fall day for every nor'easter or something. And one of the people we interviewed like said, I hate this you know, rap mm-hmm. on the air that said the S word. And I was like, well, that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that was like the only time that, that, that ever, never really happened. But like, I, I was, I'm actually still surprised to this day that I was able to censor myself as much as I was able to, you know, and I, and I think it actually helped in life too, because, you know, now, nowadays workplaces are like being on air for me. So I, I, I've been, I've been, my language is different in those settings than it is in informal settings. I think I learned that from being on the air. Definitely, definitely. Um, you've mentioned a number of people that you made these deep personal connections with. Who else was around that helped you get comfortable socially at the station and welcome you into the family and welcome you into the community? Um, Bruce, even though I, I clash with Bruce a lot, Bruce and I, Bruce and I have the same birthday. Uh huh. Which is interesting because we're two Gemini's, and so we, even though we clashed a lot, he was extremely helpful and supportive. Um, Joe DeRosa was was really he was the chief engineer. He taught me a lot about the technical stuff that I did not understand, <laughs> and um, he made it easy for me to understand. Um, there was Ed. There was uh, Fran Spencer, who was one of the community volunteers at the time, and she would welcome us into her home. And like throw parties at her house that we would go to, and that was really great. And then um, I enjoyed that. Basha mm-hmm. was um, a major figure at the time. Um, she would invite us a lot of, a lot of her like Polish club meetings where we polka dance and stuff. And and she was um, she was also good at being a little bit of a disciplinarian. Where if we kind of went out got out of line. She would kind of put us in her place, so she she was a little bit different in that she was okay with being both, you know. I don't want to say grandma because she that makes her feel old, but like our our aunt who was like always there for a good time, but we'll put you in your place if she needs to. Um, so that she was another person that that I, that I looked at. Um, I loved working with Tony Jackson and Eileen mm-hmm. on the Irish marathons. I learned so much from them, and because my last name is Irish, they would tease me about it because my, my family left Ireland to England, and so we would always, um, I would always get teased from them about that. Um, yeah, those are the people who I really remember the most, who uh, were were strong figures for me in those early days. I was just trying to like find my footing there. Hmm. Um, I, I want to put a, a throwback question in here and, and it's okay if you don't remember, but when you were in high school and you were listening to the WRHU morning show, do you remember who the hosts were? Yes. The host was Shirley Alicott. 
who I know because she currently is an anchor at ABC7 in New York. Um, and she grew up in Ozone Park, like I did. And I was dying to meet her when I was in high school. I was like, oh, she's from Ozone Park. She went to the same you know, high school by me. And she, she graduated in December when I came in. So I only had like a few months where we were in the same, um, same, we were in the radio station together. Hmm. And I remember going up to her and saying, Shirley, you're from Mozart Park, you're from Mozart Park too. And she goes, oh yeah, that's really cool. Um, and today she is actually the, one of the lead anchors in ABC7 in New York. And I see her all the time. And I remember that she was the host of the morning show. She hosted that morning show that I listened to um, when I was in high school. Josh Hartman was also on the morning show in sports. Um, and I remember like, Emily Tweedy was on the morning show. I think Mike DiCatrillo was hosting one of the morning show. But Shirlene was the one name that I remember. Because I was like, I knew she was from my neighborhood. And I knew she wanted to do like anchoring news. And I wanted to meet her. And I got to meet her when, when she was still at Hofstra. And today she's like a known figure in the New York media market. Very cool. Very interesting. Um, I, because you had sort of a connection to the station and an idea about it before you walked in, you might be able to answer this. Or you may have already answered this, but I'm going to ask it again. We, we, we're telling all these stories uh, through hindsight and the benefit of memory and the relationships and friendships that you've maintained over the years. But I'm going to ask you to go back to that point when you're a sophomore and you decide to, you know, mail in that letter and that application and show up at the station. At that point in time, what did you hope Hofstra Radio would mean for you? And what did it become? At the time, I hoped that it would give me experience in news. Um, that's what my, my primary thing was. I wanted to be, at the time, I wanted to be a newscaster. I wanted to be in broadcast journalism. I wanted to anchor, you know. CNN from London, like I wanted to do all, all that stuff. And I was hoping it would give me some experience there. Um, and it would give me some on-air experience, news experience. What it became was a, more than that. It became a, a, a turning point. I think I can divide my life in half from pre-WRHU and post-WRHU. I was a completely different person after I came in. And I think that um it became, it taught me how to socialize better. Um, it helped me figure out who I was. Like, I think I, I think I was only able to even come out with my sexuality because I, came, I went there. I felt comfortable there. I met people who were friendly there. And um, it taught me management skills, which have become extremely vital in my career. Um, and, you know, it, it, it gave me a home through a lot of really tormenting years of my like 19, 20, 21. You know, there was a lot of personal issues going on in my life. And I had a place to escape to where I could, you know, sharpen my skills and, and be around people who cared about me and, you know, and, and develop friendships and develop relationships and, you know, develop my my professional skills. So it became really my entire education. I mean, I hate to say it was my entire education at Hofstra because Hofstra obviously was greater than just the radio station, but it was, it was a, a huge 
gulp of that huge like gap uh, piece of the education. It was such a giant piece of that that you can't under I, I can't undersell it. It was home, you know. And even now, like I haven't been back in a while, and they've changed a, a lot since I left. But even now, like I I drove by Hofstra, you know, uh, a few months ago, and I saw Dunstall Hall in the distance, and I thought, oh man, that was that was home at one time, you know. And and I really like think back at it now and think how much I might actually only be alive because I I ended up there. Like I don't know that I would have survived, you know, those those college years if I didn't feel like I was able to escape to there and you know, be a, make myself a better person. Nick, that's, that, yeah, no, no, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I, I'm struggling to come up with a way to, to, to follow up other than to say, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that, it, it, for, it means that means that much to me. It really does. And, 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 you know, I wasn't able to go to the 60th anniversary because I was actually in the Caribbean vacationing. But, you know, it, everything about it, even today, like even when I just hang out with Andrew or, or my friend Alicia, who's station manager in, in 2005, and we hang out today, and I think about how I'm 40 years old. I mean, I'm, I'm close to the age my parents were when I joined the radio station, right? Right. And I still have these connections. I still have these friendships. I still have these, these skills that I mastered there. I'm able, I was able to run a newspaper. I was editor-in-chief of the newspaper for a while because of the skills that I learned when I was program director. You know, I was, I'm able to, to manage a team now in real estate because of the skills that I learned there when I was there. I made my first sale as a real estate agent, selling a house to Andy Gladding when I met at the radio station. You know, so, so much of my life still comes from there that, you know, I, I, I joke to some people that I, I have an old WRHU banner that I stole from the radio station. <laughs> when we changed the logos, the logo change. And I joked to some people that I wanted to be buried with it. But that was that was my plan, was that they were going to roll up the banner and they were going to put it in the casket with me. Because, you know, because I, in, in a way that you would put like um, something from a person's Navy days or Army days. Right. You know, that was kind of like that to me. So that's that's how much it means to me. Well, well, Nick, this is this has been both uh, amusing and powerful. Uh, I, I'm grinning 95 percent of the time, except when you took my breath away. There, uh, this has been a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your time. And and clearly, there's there's more stories that we'll we'll have so to get to. More. There's so much more I can tell you about uh, beating Barack Obama. I can tell you about going 24 hours. You just if you want anything else, you know, let me know. We'll consider that a teaser until the next episode. Thank you so much for doing this, Nick. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian.